Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. <laughs> and I'm Ashani. This is episode 21, One Does Not Simply Set Up Us the Bomb. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkien verse ahead. With that said, let's get right to it. You know, when you're working from home, on the clock is different than, like, on a Zoom call. Yeah, I don't even consider there being, like, working hours, like, at, at mm-hmm. home, you know? I put like, in some real effort to not talk about this a few minutes ago, so I'd like I'm everyone so to sorry. respect me. <laughs> no, I'm you so put an effort to not talk about the New York Times. That is different. <laughs> the New Yorker. Okay, okay, uh, New- you're right, you're right, though. Okay, Wanda, makes, okay. Wanda has a good point. Um, We are focusing up. Okay. You so, just pedantically corrected me that it was the New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, let's yeah, go. <laughs> very critical difference. The New York Times guys are doing other sketchy shit, like fabricating yeah. podcasts. Oh, my God. All right, we're moving on. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, who is the Helm's creep of this chapter? I think it's Gambling the Old. I'm assuming that Gambling the Old is the guy with no eye, because... That's just in my mind what Yeah, okay, to. but we got it. Let me do a chapter summary, please. Okay, all right. Take it away. We are <laughs> so off the rails. I refuse to let this be linear. <laughs> <laughs> the chapter summary happens at the end of the podcast. Okay, so in this chapter, we see the party of... What are... They're, are they called... They're not called writings in this, are they? They're called something else. Um, the van... Yeah, no. They're called the van. That's just the front. like the vanguard. Right. Right. But that's only the front of the army. No, okay. So the whole army goes to Helm's Deep, though. God, this is a mess. (laughs) Yeah, the whole, well, it's the whole army. And in this, in this case, it's not, it does not, um, as in the movies, include the women and children. Right. They're not, they're not going on the same road on the way to Dunharrow. They've split off. So it's just, the men. Although it's a little confusing because it like they talk several times about how the caves are a great hiding spot for everyone, but then like the people who would hide who are the like with the women and children aren't with them. Well, there are some other women and children who are already in the caves at Helm's Deep, but the women and children from Edoras are going to a different place. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is the women and children of the area around Helm's Deep, that whole valley that they ride through. Gotcha. The farms and stuff from there. Guys, the summary for this chapter is just, they go to Helm's Deep. It's the Battle of Helm's Deep. If you yeah. don't know what that is, I don't know how to help you. <laughs> I, I'm going to yeah, admit, I was like pretty, pretty buzzed when I read this chapter at like 2 a.m. last night. So <laughs> I well, probably well. I probably remember a lot of things like inaccurately. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, ah. Uh... Helm's Deep. <laughs> that's my well, impression of you being drunk reading the chapter. Yeah, that's what I sound like. <laughs> yeah, And maybe a good place to start is by saying that after multiple discussions about how Tolkien approaches action scenes, we now have a chapter that is almost entirely either the lead up to or an actual battle itself. So I think the place to start is just by saying, how do we think he did? So I I feel like it was very apparent 
from this chapter that this is like somebody who has been in battles, right? Like you could tell kind of the expertise of how armies work and how war goes. Um, that like really came through. But the interesting thing is like, I I almost feel like he spent so much time trying to make it like realistic to what a battle would feel like that he kind of didn't think about whether the reader would be invested in like the tension of what was happening. And I felt that mostly because as a reader, I like to um, follow along with what like one or like a small group of characters are experiencing. And he kept jumping back and forth between like an overall, like as if you were, you know, a, like a plane flying over this battle describing what was going on versus like then going back into, okay, now here's Aragorn and Theoden and that's what they're doing. And now here's Legolas and Gimli and that's what they're doing. And it was very like, I really liked some of it and I really didn't like other parts of it. Um, but it kept taking, I felt like it kept taking me out of what I would have perceived as the tension of the battle. Are you talking about only during the battle or also during the lead up to the battle when they're kind of making their way to Helm's Deep? Yeah, also during the lead up, because I think we've talked a little bit about before, like in Moria, like um, how Tolkien did a pretty good job there at like ramping up the tension of what was happening and like making you feel the stress of the fact that the orcs are approaching and that like something else is coming. And that was kind of lost here. Like I didn't get the sense of like, who is coming for them? Why are they running? And like, you know, this idea of going to Helm's Deep to make this last stand it didn't come through clearly. It felt more like they were just going somewhere because they had to. And it's not even clear like what the purpose of them being at Helm's Deep is. At least to me, it wasn't super clear. Yeah. Right? Like they, they learn, they, they have, um, I mean, Tolkien uses this phrase, the rumor of war, but he, and he means something a little bit different by that. But in part, he means like they're, they have a vague understanding of what kind of forces Saruman is sending at them. And they're sure enough that he's sending a large host of orcs and quote unquote wild men that they decide to just go somewhere where it's a little bit safer. So they yeah. send the women and children to the hills of Dunharrow and then the, the men go out and they go to Helm's Deep, but they don't actually start out going to Helm's Deep, right? No, right. they don't. And I think that's the part where what happens is they encounter that messenger on mm-hmm. the road. And the messenger is the one who says there were other forces. We were trying to hold the line against Saruman's orcs and we broke. They pushed us back over the river. A lot of us are dead. All of us are scattered. So if you go there, you're not joining a larger army. It will just be you on your own against this army that has already beaten us. So at that point, you don't want to necessarily meet the opposing force on open ground. You would rather be in a more defensible position, which I think is why they go to Helm's Deep and also hoping that some of the survivors will have fled there so they will be able to pick up reinforcements. And I think strategically, like the existence of the caves make it like a fairly like decent strategy overall, because the the more they get pushed back, like there's somewhere to be pushed back to that is defensible. Um Although also they are kind of like trapping themselves in that way where there's no like escape path from the caves. But I actually liked the like encountering of the messenger and that I that 
glimpse into the fact that like we didn't just meet all of rohan right like it wasn't when we met theoden and like his men like that wasn't the entire realm of rohan and i like that reminder that there are other people who were defending things and it's kind of a parallel to what we see later of like faramir's last stand in asgiliath and um like you know the idea of like you know being pushed back to your ultimate defensible place you get some pictures of like what everybody how everybody else in rohan is living right you yeah get descriptions of the homesteads that are out on the plane that are being destroyed of course mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i thought it was like uh, it felt more real because of those descriptions and it wasn't just like all about this one king and his plight yeah and I think the realism is something that I recognize, and I also wonder if there would have been a way to maintain that sense of realism without breaking the tension. Because I think it's accurate to say that if you are under siege or you're anticipating being under siege and you're being chased back to this fortress and then you have to wait for the opposing army to come up to you and start basically trying to break through, you can't maintain a the same level of stress the entire time. Like your body just won't sustain it and it's not going to put you in a good position to fight. There are going to be moments that are more stressful and then moments where it's like Aragorn goes around and like cheers up the men or Legolas and Gimli break the tension in a way that I thought was probably drawn from some of Tolkien's own experiences, those moments of lightness Mm -hmm. that you still find waiting for a battle to start. And at the same time, like, that perspective or the lack of perspective, I feel like, took you out of the underlying sort of, but we know that this is coming, Mm -hmm. that could have still been there. Is it just me or, like, I really felt like this should have been two chapters. (laughs) Like, it felt like the lead up to the battle was, like, a different mindset than the battle itself. And it could have just been split into like uh, two chapters with a with a pausing point in between where it's essentially like the drop right like you wait for the drop and then you're like all right battles begun <laughs> the, ba- when um, the battle drops yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i know we're gonna talk we're gonna talk a lot about the movie but essentially the drop is when that guy like shoots the arrow too early right <laughs> like <laughs> yeah to- no totally it, with the- when the guy with no eye yeah aka definitely gambling the old yeah (laughs) yeah he's described in this chapter as gambling the old yeah with caps and and that was actually kind of the problem here was that like we kept getting other characters that we a have never seen before b are probably never going to see again and like we just don't care about them you know we spent one and a half books building up the investment in our hero's journey and to be like continuously pulling us out of the hero's mindset and what they're experiencing, it feels unnecessary and like just a dis- like a distraction from what's happening. Well, I think that part of what Tolkien is trying to get at here is is that unlike in the movies where Helm's Deep is really intentionally like this pivotal scene, right? And it's like it serves as this kind of crown or what would you say like a like a kind of a peak of tension. Yeah, in yeah. the films, right? Like everything is sort of building to this. In the book, we're still like only halfway through, and it. I was actually interested to see what you guys thought about this, but it doesn't even seem like this is supposed to be a huge pivotal plot point. Well, are we halfway through the two towers, or are we halfway through like this particular half of the two towers? 
Because yeah. is it the climax of like this set of characters experience? Not even. We have four, four, I think more chapters before this book is over, right? Yeah, but we also have Mary and Pippin and Treebeard going on. Like, yeah. We, had, we don't know what they're doing. So And and I think the rest of those chapters are going to be a denouement from Helm's Deep. I don't think there's more rising tension. I think this was the climax. And after this, it's going to be falling tension when it comes to Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli's part of the story. But I think, so, and, and that's why, I, that's what I kind of, I was trying to get at is that like, in order for something to be like a peak of tension, there has to be stuff building to it, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have to have some kind of investment in what's going on. You kind of have to feel like, all right, if they lose this battle, then X, Y, Z. Um, but they don't really set it up. Like, Tolkien doesn't really set it up as a potentially Rohan-ending battle if it goes badly, right? Mm-hmm. Up until they get there, they're... I don't even know if they... Like, you don't get, like you do in the movies, like, this view of, like, tons and tons of orcs, you know, coming over to, like, kill them, right? Yeah, in a weird way, it's almost like the story is moving too fast. Because, like, we just met... Theoden and Rohan, right? <laughs> like 1.5 chapters ago. And the idea that like now we care about this level of stakes where it could be the end of their realm is like it's not enough time to get invested in that, which is why like I feel like he had to make a choice where if he had given us the Aragorn Legolas Gimli version of this, okay, fine, where we know those characters, we've been with them. But instead, he chooses to try to give us all of it in this battle. And so you're not like or at least I wasn't fully bought into all of the stakes. What is gained, I think, is like, that's the thing. Like, what is, um, we know, we, like, we come to realize at a certain point that, okay, there's a lot of orcs coming to Helm's Deep, and if they succeed, our heroes will be killed. Mm-hmm. And there's a fairly high chance that that's going to happen. But what happens if they win? Like, is that is that clear? Like, that's something that, like, the movie makes a lot more clear, because you see... You basically see like Saruman's put all or Saruman has put all of his eggs in this basket, breeding this like massive army, and to have it all obliterated is quite a blow to this guy. I don't think that's as clear here, because I don't think that's the stakes. That's not like I don't know that that's meant to be the stakes. I think the stakes are meant to be survival. Yeah, I don't know if that's actually that clear in the movie either, because I feel like the like the ants breaking down Isengard is really what brings Saruman down because he really could have just kept making another army right if he wanted to so it doesn't like it feels like more to me like in both stories the stakes are the survival of Rohan as a realm I mean so what's happened is that Theoden has like woken up from his his torpor way too late these orcs are already have already done like a lot of damage and Helm's Deep, like, squirreling everybody away in Helm's Deep and fighting out the orcs there while all of the women and children go into hiding is sort of like a damage control strategy. And that's something yeah. that I didn't figure out until, like, most of the way through this chapter. Yeah, it's interesting that you said that it doesn't feel like this is a, like, Rohan ending potentially battle. And I'm wondering if your sense is that Tolkien just didn't convey that very well or he didn't intend it to be that way. Because I definitely got the sense that the stakes were the end of Rohan as a 
country because the king and his heir are at this battle. Mm -hmm. There is no one left other than Eowyn, who is, we hope, squirreled away in the caves with the women and children. Like, all of the combatants of basically the two major fighting forces in this country are here. And if they die, you know, and the king and his heir die, that's the end of the country, right? Realistically. Well, and actually, there's this kind of interesting extra component here where the orcs aren't just orcs, right? It's not just an orc army. There's also these wild men who are fighting with them who are basically like the hill people of Rohan, I guess. And mm-hmm. um, it basically what the setup is, is that they were sharing this land and then eventually the kings of Gondor were just like, no, it's for you now, Errol. Aoral, <laughs> Yoral. <Yorl. laughs> so are, are you are you building to that? Like, if uh, if the army at Helm's Deep gets defeated, then the women will have to mate with the wild men. I wasn't going to the mating strategy. I was just saying, like, I feel like there's kind of an implied, like, for the wild men, the stakes are you can have this land back if they win, right? Um, and I feel like that's what Saruman sold to them. And I don't know if that's true or not. He may not have given it to them, but that's certainly what he told them would happen. And so you do kind of get the sense of like, it's not like they're just going to burn this place to the ground. Like they're just doing it for these other people to take yeah, over. Yeah, they say that. So they say that the Lords of Gondor gave Rohan to Eorl, yeah. who's the, mm-hmm. the patriarch of the house of of the kings of Rohan, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. what is it implied that he gave it that he gave that land to Yorl and it previously belonged to the wild men? I don't think yeah. it like belonged to them. I think it's intended to be like kind of a parallel to how I guess the Native Americans viewed our land, right? Like they they didn't own it. It was just they were there on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It does seem like I mean and and to like put kind of a to to bring an end to this like line that I've been coming back to for the last few recordings, like Rohan feels like cowboy country for a reason, right? Like mm-hmm. it does. We we learn now that it's colonized country. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's it's weird. Like up until that moment, I have been I had been very on board with like Rohan as a realm, and I was like, yeah, I really like them. Like they're awesome. And then for like a moment, I was just like, this is <laughs> I don't like <laughs> <Right>? this though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was a moment where they, the wild men are shouting threats, and I don't, you know, they're not even really, like, they're the Dunlanders, right? Because they're not unintelligent or, no. like, uncivilized. It's, no, these people lived here, and they spoke a language that used to be heard. They say they spoke a language that used to be heard in the western part of the mark, and they have never forgiven us for the fact that the Lords of Gondor gave Rohan away. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't either. You know, you basically kicked them out. Like, you made it mm-hmm. so that they could no longer sustain, for whatever reason, living in the place that they used to live. Yeah, there's some massive, like, like, westward expansion parallels here. Yeah, like, uh, handed down from on high by the Lords of Gondor, which right. just did not sit right with me. Right, and it becomes clear that, like, kind of like the, like, other alliances that we've seen in this book, like, 
Um, whereas in the movie, I think that when Theoden says something like the old alliances are dead, what the, the impression that you get is that there used to be, we used to have societies where people, sorry, I've got a bunch of noise in the background, but we used to have like a situation where like different civilizations or societies were like peers, right? It's clear that like Gondor was the senior partner in the Gondor-Rohan partnership, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Um, and probably gave away, quote unquote, gave away some land that belonged to the Dunlanders or where the Dunlanders were already settled and gave it away to Rohan and Rohan was like, Oh, thank you. Right. And I think a critical part too, is that like the Dunlanders aren't evil people, right? Just because they're on this orc side of the battle, like they're not bad or evil in that way. It's a more subtle, like they have allied with the people that they think can get them what they want. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's like, I, (laughs) I, see, I know we, like, continuously keep talking about how Tolkien experienced war. I feel like it's inescapable as a topic, but um, but it feels like that idea comes from that where, you know, just because a soldier is on a particular side of a battle does not say anything about, like, whether they're good or evil, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and like, I mean, Tolkien being in, in world wars, right, like, God all of like central and western europe has been colonized and recolonized so many mm-hmm. times over it's basically like a i don't know patchwork yeah <laughs> disaster mm-hmm. at the point at which the world war has actually happened yeah talking about gondor and the lords of of gondor i think something that comes up in this chapter in our notes i saw um someone had kind of a iffy reaction to Gandalf and we also had some thoughts about Aragorn in this chapter and I'm trying don't we to always <laughs> oh god yeah we really do um and I don't know how much time we want to spend on Gandalf although I will say that I felt very vindicated when we got to the part where Hama and that other guard have a little exchange and the other guard is like yeah I mean we know what Wormtongue would have said about the fact that Gandalf just like disappeared on us basically and hasn't been seen since and Hama's like no you got to give him a chance but it's yeah. reasonable right that some people in Edoras would have had some doubts about Gandalf still because they haven't really seen enough and so I stand by the fact that the throne room confrontation should have been a fight anyways that's all I needed to say Wait, I don't think you explained enough the moment that you were talking about, though, because the moment that you're talking about is when Gandalf is like on the road with them to Helm's Deep and then he pieces out, right? He's like, I've got to mm-hmm. go deal with something else and I'll be back. And, and he doesn't really explain himself at all. <laughs> even yeah. though he could easily explain himself. It's so frustrating. It's like, Gandalf, why are you insisting on acting like the sketchiest character while trying to convince these people that you're the good one. And I, I felt so sad for Theoden when he says this line about, he's like, I miss both my old and my new counselor. He's like, I just need help, you guys. <laughs> like, yeah, he's like, I don't have any Grima and I don't have any Gandalf. Yeah, and it's and you feel for him because it's like, okay, you kind of get to understand how Grima got to the position that he was in because this king just like needs an advisor. He needs somebody he can trust to like mm-hmm. help him lay out these mm-hmm. plans and he doesn't feel like he can do it by himself, which I actually feel like isn't a terrible quality in a king, right? To like yeah. rely on the trusted advice of the people around you, but um, for Gandalf to just be like, yeah, no, you do this. I'll be right back. <laughs> like, and like what he's doing is he's going to get like another 
formation of Rohirrim. He could have just said it. He could have just been like, I'm going to go get the other Rohirrim. Yeah. yeah. What are you doing, man? <laughs> I'm going to go look for Urkenbrand, and if he survives, I will bring him back, right? Like, so also many options. Also, my reaction to the name Urkenbrand. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, like, Hall of the Mountain King, Ride of the Valkyries. I thought it was a place at first when they were talking about it, because it sounds like a place name. And <laughs> I was like, what is this? Yeah. No, yeah. really, every, every, like, name in Rohan sounds kind of like... Um, like an American, like a like a New York or Cincinnati based furniture store that's trying to give things like Scandinavian sounding names. <laughs> Don't yeah. say that when I'm taking a drink. <laughs> it either sounds like that or like an Urban Dictionary sex move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can do, you can do the the Urken brand on the Urken yeah. brand sectional. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you can breach yeah. the deeping wall on your Urken brand bed. All of the Helm's Deep names. So there were a lot of Helm's Deep related names, and they were all very sexual. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can leave it there. <laughs> Look, if, if you're interested, go read this chapter, and like you can play, you can practically play a drinking game with how sexual the names are. But it's all in one paragraph that yeah. he introduces them. It's like literally three sentences, and he just hits you one after the other with these <laughs> names. Well, and this is the thing too, is that like you guys were talking about how this chapter is a little bit hard to follow, and the pacing has mm-hmm. like these, it has these choke points, sort of where sorry yeah. to say a sexual word, but it has these choke <laughs> points, and where like the pacing kind of slows down, and I think they all have to do with the geography, um, because Tolkien has sort of this weakness where he's trying to tell you how things are laid out, but he's also trying to do it in like a lovely way, and it doesn't always work. And you've got this these scenes at Helm's Deep where they're going, they're they're rushing to and from the Hornburg and then back to the wall and then down into quote unquote the breach. You don't even know what the breach is supposed to be, and that made it hard for me to follow the whole thing. Yeah, I also found it happened with dialogue and with a couple of passive descriptions of action. Right, there's a moment where the rear guard gets pushed back, and instead of showing us the orcs like swarming after them the rear guard is just like oh yeah they're coming and it's gonna be bad but we showed them that you shouldn't carry torches at night when you're because we shot a bunch of them and i'm like okay but you didn't need to put that in dialogue like you just took all of the bite out of it i really want to talk about like what tolkien's sort of like what his sort of perspective is or like the kind of perspective that the narrator has in this book because it's, all it's not over the place it's it is all over the place and it, it's sort of it's simultaneously like you know it's it's a lot of people will say that lord of the rings is supposed to be a mythology or a history right and it's it's you're not intended to get this really person specific kind of narration right you're not supposed to be like uh doing like a, a basically like the writing equivalent of like a close-up He's not supposed to be doing that. But he also does, right? Like, you get these moments with, like, Legolas and Gimli. Like, the the body count that they... Like, their their contest to see who can kill the most orcs. Mm-hmm. Like, he returns to that throughout the chapter. And so it's almost like he's jumping back and forth between narrating a mythology and going just about as personal as one can go. Yeah, yeah. I I hope that, like, after we do this series, if, if we can, like, keep going... I, I want to go back and read The Hobbit because 
that was kind of like the entry point into this world before he decided it was a mythology and everything. And from what I remember, like that is much more typically like a linear story that is told. And he doesn't do as much just like jumping in and out of mythology telling and like telling you about the landscape and stuff. But I, I don't, it's been a really long time since I read it. So I do kind of want to go and see like, was he trying to continue? Was he trying to simultaneously like continue a story he had already started, but then was obsessed with this idea of creating a mythology? So like also tried to give us that. Yeah. Yeah. Was he, was he kind of doing, was he kind of doing too much? Right. And it's interesting you talk about this close up. And one of the things I really wished for a couple of times was that this had been an Aragorn chapter. Yeah. I really wanted this to be an Aragorn chapter the way that we got a Pippin chapter a while back, because this felt like a really great opportunity to show us to show us Aragorn being a leader. Right. That if we had gotten for a moment a little bit of his fatigue and his worry and that moment of like, I'm really scared, but man, I have to keep it together because Theoden needs me to be strong and all of these guards on the wall need me to keep it together because like, here is Anduril and I am the wielder of Anduril and I need to have it together when I'm around them because they are relying on me. Mm-hmm we could have had a really powerful moment of here is someone who is still doubtful of his ability to take his place as king, but is stepping up. And we didn't get that. Do you mean that what you would have wanted was um, a display of vulnerability for him? Or do you mean that what you, you wanted sort of like a, a peek into his character that was not formed through dialogue with other characters? Both, I think. I wanted a peek into his character where we got to see some reflection or some of that internal monologue that we got from Pippin several chapters ago. And Mm -hmm. I wanted some of that internal monologue to be... As a character, it is hard for me to wrap my head around the idea that Aragorn doesn't ever have any doubts about the fact that he is, at some point, probably going to have to become King of Gondor. And that after 80-odd years of dodging being king of Gondor, he now has to... He is moving towards that, right? He is making active steps. He's not going to be able Mm -hmm. to get out of it at this point. He has announced himself to too many people in too many places. What I think is interesting is that because the story has left so many of these blanks with Aragorn's character, Mm -hmm. it gave the screenwriters in the movies really every opportunity to like come in and round it out with whatever it was, whatever other kind of personal characteristics they wanted to just shove into the, the like straw bag that was like Aragorn's Aragorn's character figure. Right. Like I'm pretty sure they were just like Vigo, just go be you. And that's the rest of the character. (laughs) Well, And in the movies, he's like, Aragorn is like all vulnerability, you Mm -hmm. know? And I think that's what is so, that that's what was so winsome about him like but i i'm caught between agreeing with you ashani that like i would like to get more inside aragorn's head in the books but also feeling like i really like that i really like that we are getting a character who is kingly and we're not we're not uh 
Tolkien is not doing that by making us sympathize with him. And that's just because I personally have this thing against, like, kind of this thing against movies or books that get you to buy into the idea of somebody who is a leader um, by making them seem, like, really personally endearing. I don't love that. Um, so personally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't care if Aragorn was just a dick on the inside. <laughs> I would be fine with that. If we got a peek into his inter- like interior world and we learned that he's like an egomaniac who does not have any doubts about the fact that he can become king after 80 some odd years of like you were saying, skirting that duty, I would still be pretty invested in this, you know? And I don't think that that's necessary to make this story work. But I do agree that um, that this chapter is, I think, about 75% narrated by Aragorn. And if it were 100%, it would be a better chapter. I kind of agree with you, Wanda, that like, I, I don't think I would have cared if he was, if we got this like Aragorn that's not charming and not like winning and not really even a person that you want to be around. That's That's fine. My problem is that like, we don't get that either. We get like this right. kind of like piecemeal. Here are about 30% of the qualities of this person. Figure the rest out yourself, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we necessarily even need to get a chapter through his eyes or anything like that in order to get this because I look at what we've gotten from Theoden, which is like two chapters of content right now, but I still have a very good idea of who that character is in terms of like his leadership abilities, what he wants to do as a king, what he's able to do as a king. Even this like very small moment in this chapter where he meets this guard and and the or sorry the messenger and the messenger is like, "Oh, you king, you're back." And and he very honestly is just like, "Yeah, sorry I dropped the ball for a bit there, but like I'm back now." And I really liked that. I was like, "This is a guy who owns what has happened, but is like now ready to take charge and lead his people and we we haven't seen very much of him but i feel like he's a full character whereas with aragorn we've seen now a, a lot of him and i still don't have a sense of what drives him and what motivates him to do the things he do he he does um <laughs> to do the things <laughs> he does it just feels like his destiny is basically carrying on his plot line rather than he as a character carrying on his plot line. So so you don't think that it's enough to imagine that Aragorn is just doing what he does because he doesn't want Sauron to take over? I, I don't think I even know that. Like, I feel like he hasn't even really said that um, or shown mm. me that in any way. Like, it feels like he is moving through this story as somebody who does what's expected of him and i don't get a sense of like what his actual motivations are yeah yeah i mean i think that like uh, sort of unlike in the movie tolkien is not trying to bring you along for the ride as you buy into this idea of aragorn being king like yeah he's there's like this moment where aragorn um shit talks the orcs to their faces while he's on the battlements at helm's deep and then the narration says, like, literally, he was so kingly in this moment. But <laughs> I got the impression that that was more supposed to just be like, that was that was more like Tolkien going into, like, myth-making mode, right? Where it was like, this is like the legend of Aragorn became real in that moment. Like, he's not trying to get you to, like, like Aragorn anymore. He's just yeah. kind of saying, like, he had this special sword and the light of the Valar shone upon him. 
Um, I don't know if I'm really making any sense here. No, but... I think I think I agree with you in the sense that like the way he set the, set up the story, like in Tolkien's mind, Aragorn already is king. Like it doesn't matter that he hasn't taken the throne yet. the The pre established context is that he will, and it's going to happen, and you will see it eventually. And so it, he's not even invested in in showing us why, because to him, it's like it's already a fact, right? And you're not supposed to like go along. You're, you're, like Tolkien is, does not require that you like Aragorn in order mm-hmm. to make him king. It's sort of like a it's like a preordained fact. Yeah, and I think also like we have a tendency to honestly probably a lot because of the movies, but we have a tendency where like we keep wanting to like Aragorn. Why have we entered the story mm-hmm. with the preconceived notion that we will and are supposed to like him when that's not really anything that's dictated by the storyline, right? He's just a main character of many in the story and he's one that we're following through like his journey to reclaim his throne but we keep being like why don't we like him and it's like what why do we have to <laughs> you know i have a theory that i wanted to share with you guys actually if if i can take a minute to do this um yeah and it goes back to how we all really like gimli and we think that like gimli is like a master diplomat um mm-hmm. i was just looking at this part of the script of the two towers where they're at Edoras for the first time, and Aragorn is basically talking to Theoden, and he says, open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. And Theoden says, last I looked, Theoden, not Aragorn, was king of Rohan. And then Gimli burps, and (laughs) it's like- I remember this scene. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what I was surprised at was that, like, when I was- I I just, like, read the script. I, I, like, read this part of the script today, the Helm's Deep part and the part before it, and I was surprised that the burp is written into the script. Like, and what that says to me is that the screenwriters of LOTR- did not think that the audience could survive the tension that came from Aragorn having a confrontation with Theoden that was not resolved. Not like a not like an angry confrontation, just two people disagreeing. Like the screenwriters were like, we're just gonna throw in some political comedy or sorry, some physical comedy after that. And that's gonna like that's gonna take this down a notch. And I guess my theory right now about the movies is that like in order to make Aragorn more likable and in order to kind of make everybody more human, they they gave Gimli's character the shaft. Because in the books, basically, like, Aragorn is not that relatable, and he's not that likable. And you get more of Gimli. And in the movies, it's kind of the opposite. Yeah, I mean, totally agree that Gimli gets the shaft in the movies, like, completely relegated to comic relief. And I think part of it is, like, the desire to make Aragorn's character likable. But also part of it, I think, is not wanting to give the audience like too complicated of a political setup like i don't Mm -hmm. think that they had faith that the audience could follow something that's more complex than just like two good guys in alliance and um on one hand i'm like give us more credit than that and then on the other hand i'm like honestly maybe we couldn't have handled that in the context of how long these movies already are and the story they're trying to tell maybe that would have kind of distracted from what in the movies feel like is the ultimate point. Well, I think that, I mean, there is a, there is a confrontation with Aragorn and Theoden in the Helm's Deep lead up scene. Do you guys remember yeah, that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, but it's not, it's not, um, it's not really like it is portrayed in the books. Like it, it's a, it's a totally like 
they created it out of whole cloth, right? Like Aragorn mm-hmm. in the movies says something like, you know, you should call for your friends for aid. And then Theoden like lashes out and he's like, we don't have any friends anymore. Right. Like, how dare you say that to us? And it's, it's a, it's a very, it, it just feels more personal, I guess, than, than what they have in the books. Like the movies seem to like do these more personal conflicts, but they don't really, they don't really do like the genuine two people disagreeing about strategy kind of conflicts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also think that like, as with basically every character we've ever talked about, my, my opinion of Theoden is like very shaped by Bernard Hill's portrayal of him, which is yeah. one of my favorite acting jobs in these movies. Like, I think he does such a good job of like the the strength, but also some of the weaknesses of Theoden. And he really gets across that idea of like a an inherently good king that has some major pitfalls. And and I, I love him. I love him so much in these movies, even though he can't say symbol Mina. <laughs> um, <laughs> He's so good. And yeah. I think they like they adapt him pretty neatly from the text mm-hmm. too. Which goes back to what you guys were saying, like he's already written as a very relatable character, so they didn't do very much um like work on him. And maybe that's why we're like so surprised by this Aragorn character in the books is because generally speaking most of these other characters we see are like pretty consistent with what we see in the movies like Merry and Pippin feel pretty faithful Gimli maybe not so much but like Legolas is still a himbo and <laughs> and like Eomer mm-hmm. yeah. feels very faithful um what we've seen so far of Eowyn seems pretty spot on and like what we don't like the only one that's really not matching up in my mind is Aragorn, and so it's a big deal because yeah. the movies are basically like I feel like the movies are not really about Frodo; they're about Aragorn. I I would agree with that. Yeah. So I think this is a good time to maybe jump into quickfire. All right. So my quickfire thing is there's this this moment when they're about to get to Helm's Deep, and Aragorn and Aomer. And one other person, Legolas, have gone ahead. They've gone in, in the van, as uh, as they say in the text, which of course means the front, but I think it just means they're going in the van. Um, and they look backwards. Sorry, this is actually really moving. They look back and they see the host from Saruman, and it's moving like with all this fire across the land, and it and Theoden who's also with them, I forgot to say that, says like, oh, they're they're burning literally everything as they move across this land. And he says, there were many homesteads here. This was a rich vale, alas for my folk. And I thought this was interesting because even though I've seen the movie like tons of times and there's that scene where like you get the picture of like the orcs and the, and the Dunland men going through that village and like just laying waste to it. Mm-hmm. I don't think I really understood ever that Saruman was going like William T. Sherman on Rohan. Uh, like really just like, and I say William T. Sherman because like the only, like the, the most vivid accounts of like scorched earth military strategy that I've read have been from people who were present in the South when William T. Sherman like drove his army up. Like, do you know what I'm talking about? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. like through the South, mm-hmm. like close to the end of the, of the civil war. And I was just curious what you guys thought Saruman's motivation is here. Like, he's going full scorched earth on Rohan, but I'm curious as to why. Like, what is, what is the, what's the idea? 
To me, that is the tactic of someone who anticipates that it's not a it's not his problem because his goal isn't really to take over the country, right? He doesn't want to rule Rohan in particular. He wants power, but he's not interested in conquering per se. So if if the fields get salted, it's really no skin off of his nose. He's mm-hmm. maybe planning on giving it to the Dunlanders, but you know, for Saruman himself, it doesn't really matter. And the other thing is that if you want to break an army's morale and if you want to make it hard for them to do things like feed themselves and sustain sieges, the best way to do that is to get rid of their supplies, right? You mm-hmm. burn the farmland, you right. terrorize the villagers, um, because then immediately there's really interesting research out there about like in this sort of pseudo medieval world, how many peasants or farmers would it take to support a single knight? And it's something like 50 people per full-time warrior. And so if you think about an army the size of Theoden's, even if they're not all full-time warriors, the number of people needed to support that long-term Mm-hmm. is numbering in the tens of thousands, if not more. And if those people lose their homes, lose their farms, right, the whole thing is going to fall apart sooner or later, and probably sooner. I had not even considered that. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I think part of the reason that you and I also didn't really consider that was, I think, you know, I don't know if Tolkien included this piece as like something that he was thinking about in a strategic sense. I think he was just like, this is consistent mm-hmm. with how war works. So <laughs> include it. But from a strategic sense, this only makes sense if you give it time to develop. But we don't get that time here. We just go right into the big battle that decides mm-hmm. the fate of the war, right? Um and so it's almost like we don't understand why that happened because we don't have the stakes of it resulting in the lack of feeding these people because they only have to sustain themselves for like a few days, right? right. <laughs> like, Although he does think about it because when they get to Helm's Deep, the first thing Theoden says is how much food is there here? Right, right. But yeah, I feel like it didn't, there wasn't enough time to understand the slow buildup of the desperation and, and why this would make an impact on this army. Right. Yeah. What's your quick fire, Nevia? So there's uh there's a quote in this chapter that I really, really liked. Um and I think Aragorn actually says it, uh, where they're talking about um how the like the night is coming to an end and how like the sun is gonna rise soon. And one of the guys in Rohan's army says, Oh, it doesn't matter because like these Urukai can stand in the sunlight, right? Like it doesn't matter. It's not gonna help us. Yes, and Aomer says that. It, okay, so Aomer says that and and Aragorn responds, Yet dawn is ever the hope of men. And I really, really liked that line because um one, it's I think it's a beautiful line, but also I think there is kind of this like I'm it's hard to not think of this in like pandemic context as this is a pandemic pod but but I think like as humans there is always that need that constant need to think that there is something hopeful like there is a light at the end of the tunnel even if there's objectively not 
Um, and I think that we've been doing that constantly throughout this pandemic. Like when there wasn't a vaccine, you know, we were like, there's going to be a vaccine, even though we don't actually factually know whether there will or there won't. Right. And um, all of the things that are le- like now, as we come to what many are considering the end of the pandemic, we don't really know that this is going to be something that goes away if we all get vaccinated or that we all are going to get vaccinated or anything like that. Right. But we have this like desperate need to hang on to hopes that we aren't sure of. Um, and I really kind of that this line resonated with me in that way where it was like dawn doesn't really mean anything but something about the night coming to an end feels hopeful it's like aragorn saying like like forget about the rationale just hope because you can hope yeah Mm -hmm. i don't know what aragorn's motivation in saying this line is i don't know if he's intending it to be like morale boosting or motivating it in any way i feel like he's more like just stating a fact um but it's something that like I, I I don't know. I just thought it was a very well-crafted moment. Yeah. I think that the best things that we see about Aragorn in this chapter are all moments when he's giving encouragement to other people. And there are some passages where Tolkien just describes Aragorn, like just running around and like just giving good cheer wherever he sees it. And then there's also like that specific scene where he's, he's talking to, I think it's Theoden mm-hmm. and he's, he's just encouraging Theoden. He's like, you know what? This, this fortress hasn't ever fallen when there were people inside defending it. So you should hope. Like he says, day will bring hope to me. Is it not said that no foe has ever taken the Hornburg if men defended it? So the minstrels say, said Aomer, then let us defend it and hope, said Aragorn. And it's not even like, that's not the world's greatest pep talk, but it's it's him basically just saying like, come on, let's go. It's it's great, though, because in that moment, like, you don't want a fake pep talk, right? You don't want somebody to tell you something that you know isn't true. Like, everything's going to be fine, right? Mm-hmm. That's not what you want to hear in a, in a moment of true despair and weakness. What you want to hear is, I'll stand with you. And that's really what he's saying there. And actually, these two moments are like the first glimpses of, like, an actually great leader, because that's what a leader does, right? He, he or she makes you mm-hmm. feel like, they are standing with you through whatever your trials and tribulations are rather than like watching from above. Yeah. 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 My quick fire is that as goofy as it is, I stand by what I said in my notes that the movie was still improved by including the chariots of fire, slow-mo or bomber <laughs> run. Totally. <laughs> I was sad that that happened off screen. I was like, wait, we just get the explosion. And then they're like, oh, yeah, some orcs must have taken the fire of Orthanc <laughs> into the culvert. And I'm like, no, I wanted to see it. Well, I also think the movie is greatly improved by the setup of the fact that, like, Grima betrayed that secret of Helm's Deep to Saruman because it, like, just validates everything you knew already about how letting him go was a terrible idea. Yeah. No, I I thought that the bomb in the movie is such a good scene, partially because, and I just thought about this when I was reading the chapter, but how when that wall blows up, it kind of feels like it's got a significance beyond what it means for the battle. Mm -hmm. Like it sort of feels like, I mean, because it's a bomb, which is a weapon that it doesn't seem like anybody's really familiar with, it it sort of seems like because we know that this is a this is a story that's taking place 
sort of in this liminal period between like Middle Earth being a thing and theoretically like Britain being a thing. Mm-hmm. Like if you were to like if you were to identify like a moment when like Middle Earth kind of began to explode into being Britain, <laughs> um, it feels like in the movie they they put this uh, almost anachronistic thing into the scene. And there's all this shock and you kind of like, oh, yeah. There's a like, lot of ways you could interpret like the fire of Orthanc, right? That's described in the book. Like it doesn't have to be a bomb. It's never said right, that it's a bomb. Right, yeah. Yeah. But the fact that like the movie chose to take that interpretation and be like, let's show like Saruman, the evil scientist, having developed this thing that nobody has seen before or heard of as this like basically like a a strategic way of breaching something that should have been unbreachable right and to in their minds it is unbreachable because they don't know this thing exists that can breach it so yeah and i think that like a lot of the a lot of the major kind of like moments of scientific advancement in our history have been paired with like moments of realizing oh we the things that we thought were secure are no longer secure mm mm-hmm. Like yeah. before this bomb existed, Helm's Deep was unbreachable, and now all of a sudden it is breachable because I think we see that especially now in terms of like cybersecurity of like there are right. so many things that are not safe because they're connected. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I, I wanna in conclusion to this episode say that I'm so glad that the movie exists to make sense of this mess of a chapter because like I think it's one of the best battles that I've ever seen depicted on screen and there's so many choices they made in terms of like having the whole thing at night so that when when it becomes dawn you really feel that release of tension and um you know all of these little things that I don't feel like made it quite clearly through in this chapter the way I needed them to but then I was just like it's okay because I can imagine it because I have the movie yeah Yeah, totally thanks for listening to one does not simply this episode was edited by Ashani you can find us on twitter at odnspod and tumblr at one does not simply pod special thank you to Andrew to Sneha and to all of our listeners for joining us on this journey and if you like what you hear, please feel free to give us a rating or a review on whatever platform you listen to. Yeah, I got something. I got a few things, but I don't want to go first. Can somebody else go first? Please? Navia? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's such a cute noise. That was nice. <laughs>